Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 275. This audio that you're hearing is from The Last of Us, HBO's The Last of Us, when our protagonists find themselves in an abandoned, post-apocalyptic, dark, illuminated-by-flashlights museum. And for the first time in the story, they confront a group of clickers. Oh boy, The Last of Us, the HBO series, is based on a 2013 video game of the same name. And most of it is scene for scene, word for word. And even a lot of the gameplay is in the show. And in the game, when you're roaming around and you hear this sound... The Last of Us is a story about what might happen if all of humanity was brought to the brink of extinction by a human fungal pathogen, a fungus that could infect human beings. In the universe of the game and the show, a form of cordyceps evolves the ability to get into the human nervous system and take over the brain of the victim, which is a thing that real cordyceps can do to insects and arachnids mostly, not people. But it imagines what if that would happen, because when it does get into insects and arachnids, it really does take over their minds and encourages them to do things that will help the fungus spread to other hosts. In The Last of Us, it eventually bursts through the face of the victim and renders that person blind. But after that, the fungus relies on echolocation to find people to bite with the body that it continues to infect and used to spread itself from host to host. In the game, the fungus eventually wears down its host and forces the person to find a place to stop and lie down and let their body die. Then the mycelium of the fungus enters another stage of growth where it develops fruiting bodies out of the corpse that continuously shoots spores that can spread to people via inhalation. That's what it does out in the real world. In real life, that's what happens after it takes over the mind of an ant 
or a spider or something like that. In the television adaptation, they don't do this, mainly so the actors don't have to wear gas masks all the time. But it's still very creepy and really well done. And I am just such a huge fan of The Last of Us. I was a fan years before HBO turned it into a series. There's an episode of this podcast where we talk about The Last of Us. In 2013, with psychologist Jamie Madigan, who wrote a book called Getting Gamers and still has a podcast called thepsychologyofgames.com. We talked about ludonarrative dissonance. And I still watch the trailer. The trailer still gets me to this day. What if it's true? Do I need to remind you what is out there? Once upon a time, I had somebody that I cared about. And in this world, that sort of shit's good for one thing. Getting you killed. I need something smuggled out of the city. Just cargo, Joel. I just want some simple gear, enough to set me on my way. I was thrilled when I learned The Last of Us was going to be a show on HBO, brought to the screen by Craig Mazin, the writer and showrunner of Chernobyl. And they did a great job with it. They stayed true to the source material, and they added some things. And one of the things they added, this is why I'm telling you all of this. This is what this show is going to cover. One of the things they added was a clip from an old TV show in the universe of the television program in which a scientist explains what might happen if fungus was able to infect human beings. Here's a little clip from that. And uh, Dr. Newman, you're also an epidemiologist. I presume the prospect of a viral pandemic keeps you up at night as well. No. No? No. All right, well, that's our show. <laughs> no, mankind has been at war with the virus from the start. Sometimes millions of people die as in an actual war, but in the end, we always win. Uh, but you, uh, just to be clear, you, you do think microorganisms pose a threat? Oh, in the most dire terms. Bacteria? No. You like saying no? Yes. <laughs> not bacteria, not viruses, so... Fungus. Yes, that's the usual response. Fungi seem harmless enough. Many species know otherwise because there are some fungi who seek not to kill, but to control. So, right as The Last of Us was about to premiere, I got a book from someone just like this person on this program, a scientist who urged me to pay attention and worry about what fungi could do to human beings, not just directly in our bodies, but affecting all sorts of things, all sorts of other creatures and animals and crops. And I got a book in the mail titled Blight, Fungi in the Coming Pandemic. A book that just came right out and said, yeah, human fungal pathogens, they exist. And the premise of The Last of Us? Not that far-fetched. You are treading on some. Mighty thin ice here. Do you want me to put headphones on? Only if you want to. No. (laughs) (laughs) Then no. (laughs) Emily Monison. She's a toxicologist by training 
and an expert on living things that can infect other living things. She teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the Department of Environmental Conservation in the College of Natural Sciences. And she wrote a book about deadly fungal infections, including human fungal pathogens. But the book covers infections across species and how our actions, human activities, are causing an increase in invasive and deadly fungal epidemics across the planet. The title of the book is Blight. Can you see, let's see if I can operate that. This is a, this is a, a last of us work of art that I've had, I had up for years before the, which uh, it's in the window. I can't back see there. it. No, there's, there's a glare on it, but it's in the window. It's in the window behind the plant, the gnome and everything. Uh, and, uh, in the very corner, which you can't see, I have a Last of Us figurine. Like I'm a humongous Last of Us fan. Uh, and the game, and the game came out, you know, more than a decade ago. And so I was very excited that they turned it into an HBO series. As far as I'm concerned, it's up there in the pantheon of the greatest works of art ever. Um, the game that is. How did you feel that the um, the show compared with the game? They did a great job with most of everything. I'm a I'm also a big Craig Mazin fan, so he did Chernobyl, and I figured it was in good hands, but. They took out one very important thing, and I want to talk to you about that, okay. uh, which is uh, spores. They took spores out. Yes. Okay. So they, they, and it's a big deal in the game. It's, it's always something you're worried about, and they're very like vigilant about spores. Uh, like they, there's gas masks, but apparently they took it out because, uh, narratively speaking, it, it was weird to have your actors wearing gas masks all the time, which they would have to almost like every time they went into a building, they'd be like, they're, they're, that, in that fictional universe, they're very aware that that's a bad thing. But when I came, when I when when they told me when they sent me this and I saw the cover, I was like, "Oh man!" I was like, "Did this person pull off the greatest marketing move of all time to have this book come out right after this series comes out?" Did you have any awareness of any of it at all? Are you kidding me? I mean, I started this before the pandemic. So no, and I do say like if I had written this probably five years ago, four years ago, it would have just gone, you know, would have been nowhere. You wouldn't have heard about it. So no, and it's <laughs> surprising. I mean, they did, you know, like because I always say like um, I think it was in December or November, the World Health Organization came out with that list of priority fungal pathogens mm -hmm. and then that was in the news for maybe a couple of weeks and it kind of died and then came last of us and that did more than like the world health organization mm -hmm. could do to raise awareness about human fungal pathogens <laughs> yeah well so. I, I like i like i said like i've been a fan of that for more than a decade it, you know it's a really beloved game but the uh the fact that it became an hbo series i uh i saw your book come along right after that and i was already like uh, in, in that frenzy of, ah, uh, I can't believe the whole world is catching on to how cool this is. And then I was like, oh man, this person must be an expert on this topic. And was like, I saw something on Reddit. It was like, I better get, I better write a book real fast, but I, it's, it's nice to hear, no, you've been working on this forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't have written that real fast. I probably could have written it slower. There's so, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't include in there, but yeah. Good job. Good job playing with kismet and serendipity and fate. Um, <laughs> How did you, did you see the series at all? I did. I loved it. So 
I don't think I would have watched it. Um, I'm a sci-fi fan, but not a zombie fan. So mm-hmm. when that came out, I'd read about, you know, all the articles comparing it to the game. So then it, I think someone wanted to talk about it. So I'm like, oh, I got to do some homework. So I guess I have to watch the zombie show. But then I got totally sucked in. I mean, I really, because it's not really a zombie show. No, I don't think it's more no. an apocalyptic buddy show kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, I have a whole long history of this topic, and I promise I'll ask you about the book in a second. But I, I want to nerd out with you for a second. I I read, uh, I watched that documentary that, that influenced all this, but that shows the cordyceps coming out of the ant. And then I got, uh, Zimmer had a book called uh, Parasite Rex that had a fairly large portion devoted to things that will get into animals and will affect their minds whether it's fish that will come to the water and, and glimmer so they get eaten or snails that become psychedelic little light shows. Um, and that just, I couldn't get, I could not get over the idea that a, 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 some sort of infection could lead me to do things and that that was prevalent. And of course that, that book led to a lot of discussion of uh, whether, you know, cat pee is making people do weird things. There's always been a fascination for me. And then, of course, when The Last of Us appeared as a game, I was like, oh, these people turned my fascination into a thing where I can shoot zombies. And then the, you know, the, the show comes out and they take away the spores. And this is what I want to talk about. Like, I understand from a narrative component the spore thing, but uh, how did it make you feel to, uh, <laughs> to, for there to be no spores even mentioned in the, in the show? So I cringed every time they walked by uh, what would have been an obviously sporulating zombie. And I just cringed. I'm like, wait, don't breathe. So, I mean, it was just a reaction because you just know there's got to be spores everywhere. And there is apparently no concern about that. So, yeah, that was to me, that was one of the big things that I thought was odd. Well, I, I I rewatched the opening after reading your book because the in the opening they they have this old uh, you know TV show where someone there's a scientist like yourself telling people about hey you should be worried about fungus stuff and sure enough in that that monologue he's like hey uh, the one of the, there's a, another scientist who's like hey look uh, at a certain temperature this stuff doesn't isn't really bother us it's not going to get in like people and then he's like well, what if uh, the climate changes and then it has to adapt? And I was like, ah, yeah, that's, so when I read, when I read that in your book, I was like, oh no, oh no, because now I have to actually be worried about this stuff. The rest of my interview with Emily Minosin about the very likely, totally possible coming fungal pandemic after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time 
for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, 
it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. So fungi belong to their own kingdom, just mm-hmm. like we have, you know, different kingdoms. And the fungi have their own kingdom, and they are incredibly diverse. I have a there's an amazing poster that I like to show if I give a talk because it just shows the sort of crazy shapes and structures and of fungi. So there, it's a really diverse kingdom, and it includes everything from single cells like yeasts that cause pro- that are fungi. Um, there are a flagellated fungi that kind of look like little sperm. Those are called chytrids. Uh, they're thought to be sort of the, the base of the family tree of fungi, and then they lost their tail, and then they became kind of multicellular, and you see things like the, not exactly multicellular, but mushrooms. Um, so they are also, they are more related to uh, animals than they are to plants. So for a long time, they were thought of more like plants because of how they grow. They pop out of the ground. Uh, they're kind of ephemeral. Some look sort of like flowers. So they were thought to be kind of like plants, but they're more related to animals. And that is because the basic cell, their cells are called eukaryotic cells, which are cells with the nuclei and little organs, just like organelles, just like our cells are eukaryotic cells. So that means that, you know, evolutionarily, we're more closely related compared to plant cells. And so that also causes problems for uh, trying to control fungal pathogens, particularly in humans. We'll get there to say, I'm, I'm building up to how weird and scary this is. That the, in, the, in that part of the book, you discuss all how like, they are, I think of them, you know, and I, until reading your book, like I think of like, okay, there's, there's mold over here, or okay, look, some mushrooms are growing over here. I never think of it as everywhere. I don't think of it as like in the air I'm breathing currently. And also you, you mentioned they're in Chernobyl and on, they're in the space station and they're in the deepest parts of the ocean. This was not something I considered until reading uh, your material. Help, help us under, help us get a picture of like how it is absolutely just part of the earth's earthiness to have this fungi every single where. And we're like, I think you actually say in the book, like we're like pig, each one of us is like pig pen from peanuts, just carrying a cloud of microorganisms, including, you know, possibly spores and stuff. So I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, they are there. So they're just like bacteria and microbes. And, you know, we all know about the microbiome now. And we also, I mean, I think many people now are more aware of the rhizobiome and sort of the microbes in the soil. So microbes, including fungi, are everywhere. And the vast majority of them, thankfully, are not harmful. Mm. And many of them are helpful. So that's one thing is that, you know, we're learning more through, you know, the research that, there's that great book, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, that, you know, fungi are just really important part of our world. Uh, they, and they're important for communication below ground. That was actually part of, that was another funny part of The Last of Us. Yeah. 
the you know they're kind of mushing together different fungal characteristics mm-hmm. so they had that you know below ground thing but anyway so they're they're below ground and part of communication between plants and so they're incredibly important they also produce they reproduce by spores they you know can send off hundreds thousands millions of spores depending on the fungus and that's how they reproduce it's how they disperse uh depending on the fungus some spores can just travel a little far some will travel miles so the air is just filled with fungal spores when we breathe them in and for most of us it's really just not a problem i mean we have if you have a healthy immune system um breathing in fungal spores is just you know not a problem the problem becomes when there are people who have and and most fungi aren't going to be able to grow in us anyway so that's another thing but you know if people are immune compromised then there are certain kinds of fungal spores that can be problematic but for the most part you know most of us don't have to worry about that and we don't even know that we've been we don't even think about it like you said that we've been breathing in you know tens of thousands of spores all the time breathe them in breathe them out yeah yeah you mentioned in the book like there has to be a, a pretty massive collection before we can see them with our eyes but then there's the, these black yeah. spots and little collections of things that, but they were there anyway they just weren't uh masked up in that way oftentimes uh, in certain situations um yeah it blows my mind uh and i love i love this i can see why the invisible world appeals to you because when it uh when it when it starts having an effect on your life you're like oh okay i I wasn't paying attention because I couldn't pay attention, but there's more to this than it, it's interesting. I think that there are a lot of, I think that some people get that thrill from the stuff you can't see. I often think about how you can't see the Andromeda galaxy, but if you could, if it was bright enough, it would be bigger than the moon. And it would just be like the only thing anybody would ever talk about. And we'd have mythologies about it. And there, it would be a big part of hu- the human experience. I feel a little bit about that way about spores and, and, and fung, <laughs> fungi because there was a, a Star Trek reboot where they had the whole ship is run by the mycelial network, um, some sort of cosmic mycelial network thing. And uh, the spore I, drive. And the spore drive, yes. <laughs> uh, and I, I see I see it mentioned all over the place. There's a resurgence, of course, of, uh, of psychedelics and popularization of it and, and, and a uh, more acceptance in medical domains. And it's just... There's a, it's in the zeitgeist. It's, it's a thing. And then, you know, the last of us comes along and says, Hey, but also this bad stuff too. Like if that show thrilled you and you're excited by it, but you're like, but you want to actually understand what's going on and should I be scared? Well, you know, I have a, I have a book, I have a book for you. <laughs> um, so let's get into that part of it. It says, uh, it's, it's so weird that I just don't think of it as being, I think of it, you know, viruses I, I totally accept because I have lived an entire life up to this point knowing about them and having experiences with them. The idea of fungal pathogens still seems really weird and alien to me. And it feels like something out of like sci-fi. You open the book with, I could see it as a movie scene with like a bat just living its life, goes into a cave. There's a spore that's been waiting on it for years. And then it picks it up and, oh no, now we've got a bad thing happening. It feels like the opening of a zombie thriller. And you talk about very, a wide variety of things. The, the white nose thing, rust, chestnut blight, uh, Dutch elm, and then we eventually get to the bad human stuff. I'll save that for next, but I want to, if you could help people who are like, oh no, what is this stuff? What is a fungal pathogen? What is this thing? How could it possibly affect other life forms when this was something I thought ate dead stuff? That Okay, that is a good question. So 
And I'm not sure I can fully answer it. It's actually something I set out to do. I really wanted to understand how exactly did just what you asked, how exactly does fungal or a fungal pathogen kill an organism? And I think the answer to that in part is just by living on it or off of it or in it. Not all fungi are, you know, eat just dead stuff. Some just need like keratin or chitin, stuff that's on insect wings or bat wings or in our skin. So they can feed off of that and they're just making a living. They're just eating whatever it is we have to offer if they're doing that. That's one thing that fungi do that are a little bit different. Like viruses use us, they're in us and they use our cells to reproduce. That's what they're doing. And then when they burst out of our cells, that's often when, you know, they cause damage and harm and we get sick. But um, fungi are, they're just, they're just living in us and, and reproducing. But as far as I know, that's what's happening is that they're, you know, if they, if you have a systemic infection that they, they're growing inside of you, which is again, rare in humans. I think I'm used to, as a toxicologist, mechanisms. What's the mechanism? How does this cause harm? Which I'm also learning in toxicology is something that is not as clear as we used to think it was. It's not just one mechanism. So, you know, it's the same thing with when you get an infection. It's like, how exactly does that cause harm? Most of these fungal pathogens that I have written about are not really releasing toxins, fungal toxins that cause you to be sick. There are certainly mushrooms and that have toxins that can kill you. But that's not what I wrote about. Those I wouldn't call pathogens. Those yeah. are just deadly mushrooms. It's weird. Yeah, these are things that are like, hey, you're just another part of the planet and I'm going to eat. There's a there's just a part of you I need to eat that I want to eat. And it's going to be really easy if I get in there and, and, and it causes problems. Uh, I think most people's only familiarity with, oh no, I have to deal with, with fungal things would be, I used to hate those commercials for the toe fungal creams. Uh, don't, don't make me think about that. <laughs> that's maybe most people, I think like that's the, the extent of the frustration that might enter their lives from dealing with fungi. Right. That and black mold, uh, which is down here in the deep South. Yes, that's a big problem, oh, yeah. especially post-Katrina. Yeast infections. Pretty oh, yeast common. infections, yes. Because I don't even think about it. See, I don't think of yeast as being a thing. It's just like, oh, there's a different word for that. Uh, I think of yeast in terms of like bread and beer and it's yeah it's a thing that i and don't those think are good about examples. that way yeah and like you know all that sourdough craze is just a good example of uh, fungi that are in the air right that's you're making your sourdough you know adding yeast up and it's just environmental fungi that you know are yeah, so, so, so for the most part, they get a big smiley face. Either uh, they're helping me absolutely trip balls and open my third eye, or they are helping me make sourdough during a pandemic, which is some virus's fault. During the, during the, during the pandemic, I'm making <laughs> sourdough with the fungi people. But then we have this thing that, that you, you, you devote a lot of time to it, and it, it freaked me out, this candida auras. Yeah, here's the thing that, that, came, that came and uh, did a lot of bad stuff, but it overlapped, if I'm correct it did some of it overlapped with covid stuff but i did not see this in the news and that may just be because i had a weird news diet during this period of time but it sure freaked me out could you please tell us a little bit about this thing that got into humans and does bad stuff to us okay so this is uh candida auris which is a yeast but yeast are also very diverse so just as you mentioned you know we have bread yeast and we have this other yeast candida auris that uh we also have Candida albicans, which is just part of our microbiome and sometimes can grow out of control. So 
yeast is a diverse group of fungi. Uh, so this is one that I think it concerns uh, public health scientists because it is a newly emergent fungal pathogen, which means it was just diagnosed in people uh, within like the last 10 years or so. So it's pretty new disease. And it caught their attention because it's something that has a very high mortality rate. So if this pathogen goes systemic, that means gets inside of you. Um, it's very hard to, for physicians to treat. That's in part because when this fungus emerged in humans, um, many of the strains were resistant to the existing uh, antifungal drugs. So that made it harder to treat. The population that is most susceptible to this pathogen, like most other fungal pathogens, tend to be either immunocompromised or compromised in some way. Uh, the disease is more common in long-term healthcare settings and hospitals where people are already, uh, like I said, compromised in some way. So what was surprising, I think, to scientists also was not only was this pathogen kind of new emerging, uh, it's that it there were different strain kinds of like, um, they call them clades, but just like different strains of this fungus that emerged around the globe around the same time at the same time. So kind of like it would have been with COVID, we kind of watched COVID evolve in time, right? We know it kind of... The, there was this sort of original strain of COVID. And then over time, it evolved into different strains that we kept hearing about. So this would be like if five different strains of COVID had emerged all at once at the very beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of evolving. And so the question is, why is that happening? Why did this yeast happen to pop up in all these different places, it doesn't seem like it's spread from place to place to place. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that it's an environmental fungus. It's probably living somewhere out in the environment as most a lot of fungi do. It couldn't really infect humans, so it didn't bother us and we weren't aware of it and something changed. So the question is what changed? Why all of a sudden, I think it emerged, CDC wrote about it in 2016. The first time it was ever detected was earlier than that, maybe a decade earlier. Uh, some sa some samples of it were found in the human ear, but it wasn't systemic, so it was living outside of humans. And so the thinking is maybe it couldn't tolerate our warm temperature, because that's one of the barriers that we have to fungal pathogens, is that most fungi cannot grow at our body temperature. And so what they're thinking is that maybe that was a, a yeast that could kind of live on the edge of our temperature, but couldn't quite infect us. Mm -hmm. Something changed, like maybe climate change. Uh, enabled it to evolve to tolerate warmer temperatures. And once it got to that point, then it was able to grow inside of us and cause um, disease in those that are susceptible to it. And it has been spreading. Another um, characteristic of it that is a little bit different is that you, unlike viruses where we can sneeze on each other and spread it, that doesn't, except for last of us, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't, uh, fungi don't spread that way. They spread by spores usually, or by so fungi tend to not be communicable diseases. And so this one though did spread through sort of surfaces. It could get on hospital surfaces, it could get on equipment and it could spread that way. And so that was surprising for a fungus because you just, the medical profession hadn't really seen that before with a fungus and that's how it was spreading. And so when you brought up the, the overlap with COVID in Canada or so here, there was this new 
fungal pathogen. It was a high priority because of the characteristics of it and that it was new, but it wasn't infecting tons of people. So there wasn't, there were just cases that they could keep track of and it was sort of growing over time. I don't remember the cases, but how many cases, but we're not talking tens of thousands of people being infected. We're talking about maybe thousands. It was a problem and it was kind of a, a very important, but not common problem. Then when COVID happened, COVID did two things. With COVID, you had a lot more, more really sick people in the hospitals. And you had people being treated with things like steroids that can mm. depress your immune system. So that was an opening for this fungus to be able to infect more people. And also there was, it was very hard, like I mentioned, it, you know, it spread on surfaces and through equipment. And at first it was hard to control with the typical disinfectants that would usually work on bacteria and viruses. So the way they were usually used to disinfecting a hospital room wasn't working with the yeast. And so that was frightening at first, mm -hmm. but then they figured out how to you know, manage that. And so I think when COVID came along, that also became more difficult just because the chaos that was in the hospitals. So from this, Candida auris kind of got a boost during COVID um, and <laughs> yeah. its numbers have been rising. I, I, there's a phrase you use, like it, it colonized the room after the patient's death. It's super frightening. That was at the very beginning mm, before they yeah, really yeah. understood it. So that doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, in the beginning, yeah, they were tearing out, you know, ceiling tiles because they just didn't know how else to get rid of it. Yeah, it has that feeling like like all the stories you tell in the book, this included, you know, it has that sense. I get that sense of it wants to live it, 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 it doesn't care about you. And uh, <laughs> you return to this over It's not the only thing you talk about, like, like the. I have a note here that yeah, you wrote that there's 1.6 million people die of some sort of fungal yeah. pathogen every year. That's more than malaria or tuberculosis. What, what role do antibiotics have in all of this? So, okay, just typically, when we say antibiotics, usually that refers to antibacterials, mm -hmm. although people don't call them that. So, mm -hmm. um, But there are antifungal medications that can kill fungus. The problem is that, so there's many classes of antibiotics. So I think a lot of us have probably been, you know, treated with one thing, didn't work. So because whatever we had was resistant, so they treated us with another thing or another thing, and eventually it worked. With antifungals, there's only, I think, three major classes, maybe four, but I think three, mm -hmm. which means that if one doesn't work, they don't have too many options. The other thing is that antifungals can be trickier, at least years ago, they were, they were fairly toxic. And that is because when I mentioned before, where eukaryotes and fungi are eukaryotes. And typically when you make an antibacterial, antifungal, anti-whatever, you're trying to target something on that organism that you're trying to kill. And ideally, you'd like to target something that humans don't have mm -hmm. so that we're not targeting our own cells. So when you're targeting these fungal cells, which their cell is similar to our cell structure, it's harder to find those targets or to make a, or if you do find a target, hard to make a, a medication that's not toxic to us too. Mm. So it's just trickier with developing antifungals. And also I think those in the field would say there wasn't a lot of attention on fungal pathogens before, and there wasn't a lot of attention, attention paid to developing antifungal medication flow yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it's, yeah, some senators have HBO and they're like, oh yeah, I'm scared now. The, so you say in the book, like there it's a triple threat. They're drug resistant, they're resilient and uh, they're everywhere already. Like they, they, we, we are roommates on this planet. And you mentioned 
how they devastated a frog population, how they devastated a bat population, how those there actually there are trees that you don't get to hang out with in this country thanks to fungal blooms that are continue to be a problem. There's a banana you don't get to taste because of all this. How did these bad things start happening? How did humans contribute to that is what I'm really asking. There's a lot of fungi out there and most of them are not going to harm probably anything. They're just living. But then that's the point. A lot of them are just living. And so in some places they might be the, to take the chestnut example, the fungus that killed off our chestnuts here was just living in Asia on a, say a, in China on a Chinese chestnut tree and that had co-evolved with that tree and the two of them were both living together, not killing each other. And so the problem is, is that that fungus got transported here where our chestnuts had never seen anything like that and had no resistance and no way to deal with it. And so they were just cream. And so that's what's, I think, changed for the most part. Fungi aren't really the bad guys. <laughs> we are. You know, we're the ones. They're fun guys. That what, moved- what, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. They're fun guys. And we've moved them around and made them, you know, provided them with an opportunity to grow on some new host that's never seen them before and has no defenses. And so that's the, the um, pathogens that I write about. That's the case for these pathogens. They're ones that have been moved from one place to another and encountered a new host. And because of that, they've just been able to infect and invade mm-hmm. and uh, cause harm. And what, what role do um, monocultures have in all of this? Oh, yeah, that too. So we've also, uh, I remember one scientist I spoke to talked about, you know, wheat field like being like a banquet for the kind of fungus that infects wheat because it's just on the wheat and then it will send spores. And because they're huge monocultures, those spores will be able to find new wheat to infect and new wheat to infect. And so by growing these monocultures, one, we've reviewed, we've created these great banquets basically for the fungi that can feed on those plants. And then also we've, we've reduced genetic diversity in our agricultural plants. And so we've done that because we want to grow what we like and what grows robustly or grows fast or whatever, or sweeter but we've also reduced the genetic diversity and taken away probably some of their protections. And so that's one thing that, um, you know, if you want to talk solutions, I think a lot of people will say the, the best solution to a lot of this is to maintain genetic diversity, whether we're talking agricultural crops or wild animals or trees or whatever. Who do you hope reads this and, and what do you hope they get from it? Like, what is it that you're aiming at now that it's out there? As you say, I wrote because I thought it was really kind of fascinating. I did want to help kind of boost that message and raise awareness of fungal pathogens because they really weren't getting that kind of attention. And so, you know, and a lot of the solutions kind of, it's very hard to have personal solutions to this. So, you know, you would say, oh, I wrote a book so that we can all act and do something it's very hard to do, right? It's very hard to stop the animal or change the animal trade as an individual. Um, so, but part of that awareness might mean that you support the organizations that are trying to do things that are trying to rein in these problems. And so I think if the, you know, just general readers 
find it interesting and then think a little bit more about when they're traveling. I thought of, I started thinking about it. I, I hike parts of the Appalachian Trail in sections and I'm like, what am I carrying in my boots as I go up the trail in the mud? You know, I just, you just start thinking about it and maybe you're a little bit more careful. I can't say I'm always more careful, but so that's one thing, just travelers, you know, just simple things like, what are you carrying? Well, if you're trying to take some plants or fruit or whatever, when the sign says, please don't do that, don't do it. <laughs> Those are just personal things. And then supporting the organizations that are trying to change things. So I guess it would be just anybody anybody who will read it. That's who I'm targeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I'm gonna, you know, it's very pl- easy. Like if you like that show, if you like that game or that series and you're scared now and you want to know what the science is, here's a book about that. Uh, but what I wasn't expecting was that toward the end where you're, you're like, look, here are the things that led to these very bad outcomes. And I think I have a note here. Was the, uh, so far, we've been lucky, but you know, that luck could be running out. And there was someone you uh, spoke with who said, we haven't just opened Pandora's box. We've swung it around, shaking out its contents. And they're not like viruses. It's a different thing. It blew my mind that these things were the result of weird human activity uh it, even like the ships that have those giant ballasts uh, releasing their yeah. water now you'd never even expect that that would have some odd impact you, you write in the book about how it, it gets into marine animals and the marine animals it somehow gets into human lungs and brains and then goes back to the water and now you've introduced this weird new element of that ecosystem let me ask you about one last thing before we head out of here I love that. I love that. There's a mold problem on the International Space Station. Uh, <laughs> I love they have mold in their shower. Something about that evokes a type of humility that I appreciate in, in human endeavors. Uh, I also love that the mirror before it burned up in the atmosphere was full of funguses, uh, full of fungal things, fungi. Well, I'd love to hear you wax poetic about that for a moment, and also, uh, and just say thanks for having that in the book. I just. That made me, I don't know, giddy to be think about. Oh my God, we've got, we took, we're in space, we're dealing, we're like having to like, and wipe the the, the space station. They do. That, that was part of. Apparently, they had. I mean, that was part of the the program. Was that if? Um, I, I mean, I can't remember all that I wrote, and I I loved writing that chapter because it was just fascinating to learn about. But there was, you know, there was rigorous cleaning that had to go on in the space. That was just part of it. Because you think of it as sterile. You're in space. like. <laughs> but you're not because you bring humans if you bring humans. So that was part of it is that, you know, they can sterilize as best they can. And they, it's very hard to fully sterilize anything that's shot out of this planet or off of this planet. But um, you can't sterilize humans. And so where we go, that's that pig pen image is that we're bringing with us, you know, the fungi, bacteria, viruses, whatever's in us and on us. Um, so it's, you know, hard to control, but it was just fascinating to think about, um, that kind of everyday problem in a place that you would think they had some really rigorous cleaning as best they could still a problem. And you write about that too. That like, there are many different agencies within NASA and other organizations that, and scientists that consult for them. They're like, Hey, we really have to disinfect and sterilize and decontaminate stuff we send to other planets because we don't know what, what's going on like if there is any life on mars and we're dropping robots on it this could be one of the worst things we've done as a species and also if we ever get there and get a sample it might ruin the sample um yeah so i should mention though when you were talking about all the stuff that we transport and ballast water and stuff like that that in general 
there's probably, I don't know, I was going to say hundreds, millions, whatever, species transported around. Most of them probably can't live in the new place that they've been transported to. So we're talking about those rare survivors. Mm-hmm. So that, would also, that's, that also goes to the space program thing where they can actually, they do a pretty good job of sterilizing the outs, you know, things that don't have humans. They do a pretty good job of sterilizing those and then sending them out to other places. And they do this in large part because they don't want to contaminate where they're going to. But in the very slight chance that something does get transported there or back, it would have to be able to live Mm -hmm. um, and reproduce and, you know, find food and all that stuff. So, you know, they're talking about a really small probability, high risk. Like, does uh, does Emily uh, eat mushrooms? Uh, have you, after working on this project, do you do you find yourself eating mushrooms? And if you do, do you think differently about it? I do eat mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I don't think very differently about them mm. um, because they're very like you know most of those pathogens do not form mushrooms. They form mm-hmm. other kinds of fruit. You know, mushrooms just a fruiting body of those soil fungi when i was in college i remember i i worked as a as a waiter and i remember there was this liver doctor who would come in once a, a week and he always ordered liver and onions and i always thought that was the creepiest thing <laughs> and, and i remember finally getting up the courage to ask like why do you do this he's like i don't know i guess it's the forbidden fruit and i was like that is <laughs> the worst answer you could have given me and it stuck with me for all these years and that's also funny because like as a toxicologist, most of the stuff like that I was studying was I was studying livers because well, the liver clears a lot of toxicants from your blood because that's part of what it that's part of your detoxification system. And so there's a lot of toxic chemicals in that can accumulate in your liver. That's just a known thing. And so my, when I was studying this and I was studying livers, I was dissecting livers. And my dad would say, you know, would always ask me uh, if I was going to eat the liver, should he, should he eat the liver? And, you know, I liked liver. So, yeah, I ate livers. <laughs> See, there it is again. This has come back to haunt me a second time. Uh, the uh, People who study livers eat livers. I don't know. I, don't, I just feel like <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know if I could eat them anymore. <laughs> I've just not been eating that much meat or animal stuff. So uh, now the thought of eating a liver is a little bit maybe chopped liver. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. You can find my book, How Minds Change, wherever they put books on shelves and ship them in trucks. Details are at davidmcraney.com and I'll have all of that in the show notes as well, right there in your podcast player. 
You can find all the past episodes of this show at Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or You Are Not So Smart. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free. But the higher amounts, they get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and all sorts of other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And the easiest way to support this program is just tell everyone you know about this show. And uh, especially if there's an episode you really, really liked, share that somewhere and say, hey, you might like this. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.